everyone, Terry Welbrock here. Just wanted to take one minute to give you a little cheer and uh, encouragement for your own healing journey or the work you're doing as a trauma advocate. Uh, one, to say thank you. And uh, two, for those who are on a healing journey, just to remind you to keep being your own advocate, keep asking the questions, keep doing the research, believe that you will overcome, that you will find solutions. I know for my own journey last week, on last week's episode, I had talked about doing an EMDR session with the soccer story and how that impacted me uh, in my current day life. And so the happy news is, is I have since been out to the beach more and more in these big wide open spaces and not just being able to be out there without the emotional attachment that was uh, that I've been experiencing out there in, in the heightened anxiety. But now I'm saying, I don't need to put the umbrella up to sit under it. I'm fine. Let's enjoy the sunshine. And we've been playing bocce ball and we've been playing paddle ball and I'm having a blast out there now uh, because I shifted things. I shifted again, the emotional attachment to it and um, just my approach to it. So today's episode is uh, phenomenal. I'm just uh, so excited to have um, this guest join me on the show. Um, yes, just a, a brilliant person and doing such incredible work in the trauma recovery arena. So uh, I'll stop talking and uh, you can listen to him. All right. Thanks, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock, and I am just thrilled to so very thrilled today to have with me Dr. Stephen Porges, and he is PhD, researcher, author, speaker, Polyvagal Institute founding member, and so much more. So welcome. Well, thank you, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I, I told you I'm a, I'm a trauma recovery geek, and so when, when you agreed to come on the show, I was doing a happy dance. I think I reached out <laughs> to some of my favorite trauma recovery people and said, guess who's coming on? <laughs> wow. Well, thank you. Yeah, I just, again, huge fan of your work. And uh, I, I told you before we hit record, uh, I had been having some little bits of health struggles. And I was talking to, I want to say, I, I'd seen a couple different doctors, but someone, one of the medical staff that I talked to brought up um, like the vagus nerve and, and brought up polyvagal work and i just i just remember sitting there thinking oh my gosh that is amazing that one that a that a medical yeah. staff is starting to talk about um yeah the work you're doing so can you talk to the audience a little bit about sure. um, your work sure. well let, let first of all say it's it's really nice to hear that because we all want our work to be used um the theory is actually uh, has traction because it provides a scientific and a clinically uh a useful set of tools, metaphors of how the brain and the body communicate with each other. It's as simple as that, because in the world that we're in, people often say, oh, that's in your head. It's not in your body. 
But whatever is in your head is affecting your body. What's ever in your body affects how you think and how your brain works. Polyvagal theory literally gives you the evidence that identifies and calls by name the pathways that are doing this. And, and enabling, in a sense, giving it a language, it enables us to find portals to help optimize how we feel, our physiology, and create what I call neural platforms for more optimal behavior, more optimistic. Uh, you know, the world we've all been, I'd say, subjected to is a world that says, do this, don't feel that, keep going. And it's uh, the metaphor I've been using lately is that, in, remember the movie, The Matrix? Yeah. But I'm going to reframe it a little bit, say the matrix we're living in is a world of threat cues. We're basically bombarded all the time with threat cues. We don't call them threat cues. We often call it stress or chronic stress or evaluation. But basically, our nervous system doesn't make any distinction. An evaluation is a threat. So if we, if we have to take a test or we're getting evaluated for a job or promotion or even if we go to the physicians and get a test, we're, in a sense, we use terms like we're anxious about what will come through. But what does that mean in terms of our body? It means our body is now shifting its physiology to threat reactions and not feeling safe, accessible, comforting. And in this safe, open, accessible state, our body heals itself, it supports homeostatic functions, and our thoughts are much more optimistic. Yes. Oh my, what popped into my head was I had gone again to all these different doctor appointments. And each time I went, my blood pressure was going up a little bit oh. more. And I was like, my blood pressure is always really good. 120 over 80. Like it's really good. Mm. And so I started taking it at home and it was yeah. even better. It was like 118 over yeah. 69. And I was like, what is happening? So then I went to my regular GP and she said, oh, it's just white coat syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> I had never yeah, heard of it, it before. Oh, oh, it, it's a common term used. But the issue is our body, is, you know, when you go to the physician's office, they think that blood pressure is a constant variable, not a dynamic variable. It's not responding to the context. So often people will walk into the doctor's office, they'll be out of breath, they'll sit down, and then their name is called, they're anxious already. And the first thing they do is pull your sleeve up, you know, the nurse, take your blood pressure, bang, 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 stick a thermometer in your mouth, take your pulse ox, and they basically assume their job is done. And when I say, well, take it again. Yes. <laughs> yes. Allow me, allow me to relax, allow me to exhale for a few moments, allow me to breathe, allow me to regulate. They, they're basically shocked by that behavior. I did the same thing. I said, mm. can you give me a minute just to do some breathing, yeah. some breath yeah. work and just yeah. calm oh. my system down? <laughs> but see, yeah. I, you and I know that yeah. how that can then regulate the body. Yeah. Well, it, it's the onboard toolkit for calming us down to, in a sense, negate those threat reactions. So slow exhalations and, you know, whether we call it pranayama yoga breathing, yoga breathing, belly breathing, singing, humming, you know, all these are the same strategies of long exhalations. So even when you talk to people, normally when a person's anxious, they only say a couple of words before they take a breath. But if they extend the duration of their phrases, they're slowing up their exhalation and calming down. Yes, beautiful. I just started doing some 
sound work lately and I love it because it is it's making those just long exhales yeah. and holding a note yes yeah so I used to talk about I was a clarinet player and I was really had this bias towards wind instruments because they they're basically pranayama yoga you have to exhale you have no choice so I would talk about slow exhalations of not being a musician and whenever I'd give this talk there'd be people in the audience that got really kind of let's say they got a little bit, not angry, they got irritated because they were percussionists or string players uh, or keyboard players. They said, we did the same thing. We exhale with the phrasing. We do the same thing. And my retort was, well, when you play a wind instrument, you have no choice. <laughs> it's not like you feel the music, you're in the music, you are the music. Yeah, so it's like there is no choice. But I was a clarinetist and I always reflect on this because I was like every other male, adolescent male growing through all these variations in, in challenges in life. And one thing I did do was I would practice every day for 45 minutes to an hour. I was actually, let's say, reasonably good. And um, so I had a pra I practiced every day. And in a way, this enabled me to navigate through complex period of time where many course of my peers, let's use this term, got into trouble. And, you know, you know, I just navigated through it. It was, you know, I, and it wasn't like I was in this, the other part of the dialogue, as we step into the world of trauma, we realize that there's a lot of uh, childhood abuse. There's a lot of family discord. There's a lot of stuff going on inside the house that many people are not aware of. And that's part of the trauma narrative because people, in a sense, feel uncomfortable talking about what occurred behind closed doors. And I started to realize that uh, uh, the, the issue of this, th this was a tool that one could have to, in a sense, calm their bodies down, to, to relax. But what I really want to go a little bit into is we're talking about this onboard tool of exhaling slowly. And this really is part of this evolutionary heritage. Now, you don't have to buy into evolution, but you have to buy into the fact that humans have certain attributes. Where they came from, we don't have to really basically say, but I will tell you, if you accept evolution, uh, the transition was from asocial reptiles to social mammals. Now, there, when you have that transition, your nervous system has to move out of threat states into states of calmness almost immediately. And this is this onboard tool. So sociality or the ability to be safe in the presence of another requires this neural capacity to detect cues of safety and turn off our threat reactions. And in the world of trauma, what we learn, and we really learn, it's a hard lesson, but it's a real lesson, and that is that the access to turning off threat reactions is minimized or turned off because of the injury in the past. So the body has learned not to trust, not to feel safe with others. So the trauma reactions are not pathology. They're a body that has adapted to survive in an adverse environment. And once you start structuring that narrative, you start seeing the body and the person as being heroic as they attempt 
has this in a sense mind and body, in a sense awareness and lack of awareness of our physiology to preserve life. And we start to see that. And I guess in the real aspect, because many people are involved not only in trauma, but in the treatment of trauma who are on watching or listening. And what we learned is that when we trigger this part of this wonderful evolutionary gift, we turn off our threat reactions and our bodies start to learn that they can be touched and we can be in close proximity. But that journey is difficult because when you're injured, the conservative way is a bias to detect safety cues or neutral cues as if they're threat. So you have to be really reassured that the person coming close to you isn't going to hurt you. Yeah. And can it happen in environment environments as well? Um, because, well, and, and my other question is, is it, can this, the switch that you refer to, or can it yeah. be turned off and on? Like, suddenly out of nowhere all of a sudden it's off <laughs> right we can you know what you're really saying is how do you get triggered <laughs> I mean, and if you're talking from a let's say a trauma perspective or a trauma informed perspective a person can be literally floating around normally and something something happens in the context and the physiology shifts and basically there is a different person in front of you or you're a different person and what it is is that there are cues of danger have invaded your nervous system and your nervous system made the decision to preserve you because that cue at one point was dangerous. Of course, trauma therapies that are, let's say, trauma-informed and now polyvagal-informed are really saying, teaching the client and the therapist about the body felt. So when you when that trigger occurs, it's not to discuss the trigger, it's to discuss how your body feels because frequently, our nervous system responds to triggers without knowing what they are. That's the beauty of our defense system. We don't debate that there's a threat, we react. Now, the question is, since we react, we now, as smart human beings, we try to make meaning out of our feelings. So if if we're in together and something happens in the context, it could be something as simple as a loud noise outside and you're in front of me, and my body shifts state. My narrative is not the loud noise outside. It's going to be you. <laughs> and so you start seeing these irrational arguments that people have because they shifted state. And now they're trying to make meaning out of that defensive state that they're in. And the, the uh, parsimonious explanation, it must be you. And I always like to do things like this. Time out. Stop for a moment. Feel your body. Tell me what's going on. How do you feel? Because once you shift state, the person who's seated across from you is going to shift state along with you because you're going to send cues, not of accessibility and welcoming, but of either being hurt or being aggressive. Yeah. Wow. You, you have my mind going in a million different directions right now. And yes, fascinating. Um, I, I did EMDR therapy for four years and some of what we did was, um, you know, tell me what's happening. Where are you feeling yeah. it? I mean, just being yeah. very cognizant of yeah. what I was experiencing. Now, is is so polyvagal? Does it integrate with with therapy such as EMDR? Is, is, that, is it its own? A, those are good questions. Okay, so we're really create this polyvagal institute 
and Polyvagal Institute is really to disseminate the principles of the theory, but to allow those principles to be embedded in other treatments. So there are people who view themselves as polyvagal informed therapists, but they might be EMDR and they might be somatic experiencing, they might be uh, internal family systems, you know, because all of them deal with a physiological state and polyvagal informed means you have an understanding of that physiological state shifting. And so I, I never uh, thought of polyvagal theory as being a therapy. I thought of it as being a set of principles that would inform various therapies, in a sense, put meat on it. So in a sense, explain why these miraculous things people are seeing with different therapies, why is it working? What are the principles? Cues of safety, shifts in physiological state, nothing magic. So, and, and, and I even developed an intervention. I wouldn't call it an integrated therapy, but an intervention. It's called the safe and sound protocol. And basically it leverages how our nervous system evolved to listen to prosodic voices to calm us down. Think of a, think of a crying baby. How do you calm the baby down? Intonation of voice. If you have a dog, how do you calm your dog down? And if you don't use a prosodic voice, if your voices become more monotonic and louder, so you're modulating information by loudness, the body reacts as if they're threat cues. So, and if you don't believe me and you have a dog, you have a dog, yes. talk in a low, uh, without prostate, loud voice and tell me, uh, first of all, the dog might urinate right on your floor because the dog is interpreting that as a threat response. And, but if you talk with the sing-songy voice, the dog you know, just becomes co-regulated with you. And babies do that. What's interesting in life is that we know this with infants, but how do we treat our peers? How do we treat our children as they grow up? How do we treat our spouses? How do we treat our coworkers? We forget that they need cues of safety. The cues of safety basically liberate us from using our resources to defend. Now we can be compassionate, generous, and even creative. So we can use our brain for good things and not for defense. I, the metaphor in that is the old Star Trek uh, episodes of putting up the energy shields. So what are you doing? You're using your, the energy shields are costly. And for humans, they're the wrappers that are protecting our core and people who have been traumatized. They're just putting wrapper on top, upon wrapper to protect themselves because opening up the ventral side, that accessibility, is vulnerability and they will tell you this and if you ask you know do you enjoy getting a hug and they'll say it and then they'll say it depends who but maybe not that but because the body doesn't feel safe in proximity when you watch a mother with a baby um, who in this in a sense that they have a good co-regulatory safe relationship the baby's conforming to the mother's chest and the mother's conforming to the baby. And you look at them and you know that the baby's getting a lot, but so is the mother. Yeah. And that's co-regulation. And when we hear terms like uh, physicians and therapists, and health and mental health care workers burning out, we know one thing's occurring. They're not getting enough opportunities for co-regulation, even with their clients. Yes.
and I, you took the words right on my my head because I was going to, going to say as you're talking, I'm thinking co-regulation, and then you said yeah. it. So yeah. yeah. So yeah. so this is in a sense as uh, mammals evolved, you know, asocial reptiles to social mammals, they had to turn off the defense systems that really worked so well for reptiles. You know, the detection of movement near them, the immobilization as defense, and think about a person under trauma where they may immobilize, freeze, um, or they may dissociate. Uh, that's very reptilian. Or fight flight, which is also reptilian. But what mammals had was something that turned off those defenses. And those were cues of safety that recruited what in my modeling is called the ventral vagal pathway. It's a neuromammalian pathway, the vagus. And it comes out of a brainstem area that's also linked with regulating uh, the muscles of our face and head. So it generates our voice. So we broadcast our physiological state through our voice and we project it through our face. But everyone intuitively knows it, including your dog. The dog is reading your physiological state from your posture, your movement, and your voice. And this reading of physiological state is a process that I call neuroception. You don't think about it. You do it. You feel it. Yeah. And the evolutionary changes had to turn off defense immediately. Otherwise, you'd have no connectedness, no sociality in mammals. We wouldn't be here. So we, people had, not people, the mammals as they evolved had to have this mechanism. And we can recruit that mechanism to cues of safety, which can be sounds, but we can self-recruit that through our slow exhalations. So it's still the same system. So when people talk about meditation and you know self-reflection, they're talking about reaching in and recruiting this physiological system that has a voluntary portal through breathing. Or you can use sound, which is what I did with the safe and sound protocol. And I view that as a stealth intervention because you're just there, just listening. You're not active. In a way, you are active because you're listening, but you're not focused in the way you would be for breathing exercises. Yes. Well, Sammy, we had talked about her for a minute before we hit record. She's a registered therapy dog. So we're, we volunteer with kids in schools oh, and wonderful. Sammy just has taught me so much. But I remember going through the training with her and one as she had to pass these 15 steps. And one of the steps was they would drop a bedpan in case we would volunteer, oh, you know, oh. in a hospital or something. And she had to maintain calm. Like she could startle, but they not like jump yeah. at it or nip at it or something. So what I did was as her, you know, teammate um, walking with her was that sing song. Hi, baby girl, you're doing such a good job. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. And so I just, I would, yeah. I would talk to her and she was looking at me as we did. And then they would drop the bedpan. And I remember them talking to me afterwards and saying, the way you engaged with Sammy was just perfect because yeah. she she had a little bit of a jump, but she was so engaged with you and how you were talking to her so gently. And so as you were just speaking, I was I flashed to that moment and thought, yeah. as humans, if we could do that with one another. But, you know, we end up, uh, in a sense, yelling louder. Is what, but the interesting part of your example is that uh, by using your prosodic, melodic voice, you recruit a system of a calming system, which is hierarchically more powerful 
than the than the defense reactions. And this is it's because uh, that hierarchy exists in our physiology, basically stages of evolution that the newer circuits can inhibit the older ones. So the sociality inhibits the defense. And you demonstrate that with Sammy. Uh, unfortunately, our parenting style tends to say you should know how to do this. You know, don't, don't react. I, it's like, you know, there's one thing to tell people what they're doing. It's another one to tell them, you know, as a, as a descriptor, but to enforce that, I mean, we react. So yelling at the person is not going to enable them to be more effectively inhibiting. They're going to end up being more reactive. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, and I tried so hard with my own kids, but <laughs> right. well, we can go there, but you know, there's a journey and we're also humans. This is the part that, so when you make that statement, we have to remember that when someone close to us who we love turns away from us or doesn't respond when we engage them, that's a violation of our neural expectancy and our nervous system reacts to it as threat. And so like when, when you tell your kid to do something and they turn away and walk away from you, what's the bodily feeling? And the bodily feeling is basically this violation of expectancy. And I call that biological rudeness. You know, we, we put labels on it and we also try to tell our kids that they must say, please, excuse me, you know, in a sense, close the loop of violation of expectancy. So if you interrupt someone, say, excuse me. If someone does something where you say thank you. So it gives the reciprocity of co-regulation. And so people's nervous systems feel better. Yes. So now make, to make a little bit of a left turn here, do you, does the Institute then work with agencies and, and doctors and mental oh. health institutes Schools. So it's a real, real good question. And so what we're developing, we're actually uh, working with a medical uh, group to try to develop what we were calling polyvagal informed clinics. And these, this is not mental health. This is full medicine, polyvagal informed clinics with polyvagal informed navigators so that there's a whole concept of how the patient should be navigate, should navigate through a medical environment. And so we're developing this program. We're developing certification programs for uh, programs that say they are polyvagal informed with a stamp. And we're working with uh, addiction clinics and mental health clinics as well to do that. And we're developing educational materials so that people, let's say, in various, uh, uh, well, trauma-related areas, uh, let's say somatic experiencing, which we're working with right now to develop course material on polyvagal theory for them. But we're working with several others as well. Yeah, well, I could give you a big hug for that because I'm telling you right now, as someone who just worked my way through five different specialists and an ER visit and wow, is it needed? And then seeing people's comments on, on support groups or on Facebook pages and so forth or in social media saying, my doctor doesn't doesn't no. take into consideration blah 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 or just well and so I mean we we have to be I go ahead, sorry about interrupt we okay. have to have we have to have a heart for the physicians we have to know right. where they're coming from we have to have an appreciation of both what they have learned and what they have not learned 
and the models that they come into their clinical practice with. And the models are far from inclusive of relationship between brain and body. And so when, when you, in a sense, look at your specialists, they're all organ-based. Not, not about the neural regulation of the organ. It's about the end organ dysfunction. They know virtually nothing about neural regulation of the organs that they study. But neural regulation is what gets disrupted long before the organ itself gets damaged. So their assessment model is not efficient for the work that they need to do. So many people come in with problems and they, have not, they can't find anything wrong with that because what's wrong with them is the neural regulation of the system. Many people have something that's now labeled medically unexplained symptoms. It often overlaps with what could be called dysautonomia, and they don't know what to do with that either because it's a neural regulation of the autonomic nervous system that is now atypical. But if they had conceptualized it within a polyvagal framework, that atypical neuroregulation is really a system that is now locked into a state of chronic defense or threat. And therefore it interferes with homeostatic process. And that means it leads to disease. Yeah, thanks for reframing that. Yes, I mean, I hadn't thought about that before in that when you go to see the allergist, the oh, allergist is looking uh, at- Well, think about that? the allergist and think about uh, allergies, because I, as, as a youth, had severe allergies, but I had what I would say a transformative moment, and that was when my son was born, and I no longer had allergies. And I, if we think of allergies as a defense reaction, and it's not hard to think of it that way, it's uh, that our body's responding to the antigen. It's, in a sense, a defensive way. And it's almost like a metaphor for hypersensitivity to sounds, to touch, our body's in a defensive mode. And that's why when we start taking slow, deep breaths and we calm our body down, our tolerance for a lot of things starts to improve or increase. Yes, but I certainly want to give you an opportunity to address anything that we haven't had an opportunity to talk about that you'd like yeah, to. Yeah, the only thing I'd like to kind of close with is kind of an optimistic uh uh, statement or optimistic summary. And that is a lot of people who have experienced trauma feel like this is a lifelong deficit that they have, and they have to sort of navigate with these compromises in functionally the nervous system. And what I'm saying, as cues of safety get in embodied or back in body, we become re-embodied in our body. Many of those features that, that were there to save us from predator are no longer required and our body becomes more accessible. So I, I'd always like to have it as an optimistic journey. And I think this is what polyvagal theory brings to the trauma world. It explains the journey of the survivor, but it also gives this optimistic uh, expectation that this, these features can, can be recovered as the body becomes safer in the environment. Yes. Amen. And hallelujah. And I, as, as an example of that, and I know I've talked about it a few times on the show before, but about three years into my healing journey through therapy, through EMDR, uh, we had gone back into a, a traumatic memory that we had been revisited before and worked through it. And all of a sudden I started sobbing and my therapist said, you know, what's happening. And I said, for the first time, 
I turned my head and I was seeing it through my own eyes. I had always dissociated and saw it from like, as if I was watching a movie, something happening to this other person. You're observing downward. Yeah. Yes. But I, I, in my, as we went back in, I said, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm okay. Being in this body. I'm okay with the scary feelings. I'm okay because I've learned so much and Oh, what a shift happened. Yeah. Well, we start thinking what really is trauma therapy? It's about being invited back into your body. It's re-embodiment. And you gave a really a beautiful uh, visceral example. So we feel what you experienced. And that is, we want to be there. We want to be, in, we want to experience. And we can see in a sense, as we go back to this concept of a matrix of threat cues, that the, the natural and predictable consequence of being in that matrix of threat is to be numb to our own body. Yes. Yeah. But in a matrix of safety cues, our body is there and we're present for others because that's how we connect. Yes. And that's when we can start doing that real healing work of mm-hmm. being being okay, being inside this body. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. Well, I want to give a little shout out to Amy Erickson too for introducing us oh. and what a what a powerful movie and thank you for being a part of that. Oh, um, I told Amy, yeah. I said she had sent me a link to watch it and I said I sobbed through that whole thing, but in a really good way because it was just so beautiful and powerful. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. All right. Well, so how do people find out more about you or how can they connect? They can go to polyvagalinstitute.org. It's polyvagalinstitute, one word, or uh, stephenporches.com, also stephenporches, one word. So that's my webpage, and that's the Institute's webpage. And you have, and, you've written books as well. Oh, and, yeah. I yeah. didn't need to. Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> yeah, so go a, read them. <laughs> a, well, there's a new book coming out in about a month called Polyvagal Safety, and that's being published by Norton. And I would say for those who have tried to read other books, it's, it's reasonably, uh, you, you probably will be able to read it. <laughs> it's, um, uh, you know, coming from a science background, I, I'm not a conversational writer. I may be a conversationalist, but not a writer in, in this voice. Uh, the, polyvag- the pocket guide of the polyvagal uh, theory is more conversational because it's really transcripts of uh, interviews. So it has a different voice, but uh, new stuff coming out, new work going on. There's also the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. And I created that. And what that's all about is to learn what trauma therapists are doing. And I invite any trauma therapist on here to basically send an email to trauma at indiana.edu to ask about the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium become a member because we need the therapists to be members because we want them to start telling their narrative, but also to recruit their patients and clients so we can learn more. I feel that the world of trauma is missing a true document or documentation of what it is. So in a sense, uh, uh, therapists know a lot, but the public really doesn't. And in fact, when I started to create this uh, uh, consortium at Indiana University, I met with the foundation, Indiana University Foundation about getting funding. They didn't have a clue what trauma was. They thought it was someone being hit on the head. 
And you start realizing that even though such a significant percentage of the world experiences significant trauma, and of course, I would say we all have experienced transgenerational trauma, it really shapes the world we're in. It's really been kind of like covered up by what society wants to call us industrial, industrious, you know, ambitious, you know, we come up with all kinds of terms, but really we're a species in this society that cannot sit down, look at each other and feel comfortable just being with another. In a sense to witness and to connect. And that's truly, that's truly our evolutionary heritage. Yes. I have a previous podcast guest turned friend who's writing, uh, we're both finishing up our book manuscripts. And so we, we talk every Wednesday at three o'clock, we have a standing call just to help each other through. And it's been wonderful. But one of the things she talks about so often is that she said, I didn't know it was trauma. I didn't, I didn't even know what I had been through was trauma because she, yeah, it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't talked about. And if we rephrase everything and say that we don't even have to use the word trauma, we have to ask, has our body and is our body under a state of threat? Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. If it's stuck under a state of threat, we would call that chronic stress, but we have to ask why it's not a cognitive decision because people say, I want to throw the stress off. I want to relax, or I want to feel safe in the arms of another. Then they try to feel safe in the arms of another and they pull back and react. You know, their bodies say, I'm not safe. I'm still in a state of threat reactions. So we have to start asking that question and then learning how to give ourselves some time, not all the time, but some time when we're not in a state of threat. Yes. Oh, beautiful. All right. Well, gosh, thank you so, so much for sharing your brilliant wisdom and the work you're doing to shine a light of hope in the world. I I told you before, your name comes up so often on the show, and I just am so thankful for your work. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Terry, and continue doing the good stuff. Oh, thanks. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody, Terry Welbrock again. Just wanted to thank you for listening to the episode today and remind you to visit my website as well as the academy.terrywellbrock.com for the courses. But if you go to my website, terrywellbrock.com, you can sign up for my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, which is also jam-packed with information and strategies and blog pieces and guest blog pieces and links to shows um, and just a great space for, uh, again, healing and hope strategies. Thanks for, again, being here and being a part of this healing space. I very much appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye.